Seltzer Kings podcasts. Yeah, I had to let Gavin have the weekend off so he could mourn the queen. Ass. The following podcast contains. This is pure filth. Pornographic filth. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. And the premise to your show was slow motion running? What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, on this episode number 378, Watch It Jiggle, See It Wiggle edition of the show, where we talk about that time America took a stand against sexism by taking off its bra. Stay tuned. What the hell were you thinking? Podcast is brought to you by the American Broadcasting Corporation. We put the broads in broadcasting. Look, it's 1975, and it's time we stop pretending that the real reason you watch our shows isn't the boobs. We here at ABC want you to know that we know. That's why ABC's primetime lineup is just a parade of beautiful women wearing as little as standards and practices will let us get away with. NBC and CBS know this too, but they pretend they're better than us. We here at ABC say if you got it, flaunt it. Boys, do our shows flaunt it. The object of television is to sell advertising and nothing sells like sex, so stop pretending and turn on ABC. Let us turn you on too. ABC, we've got the boobs. In fact, that's how I pitched it to the networks, exactly. I said, uh... I'd like to do a show where I rid the world of all these fevered egos that are tainting our collective unconscious. And the guy at CBS said, will there be titty? And uh, I said, sure, I don't know, sure. Boom, a check falls in my lap. And uh, I'm a producer. I never knew it was that easy. All these years I've been trying to write scripts and characters and plots and stories that had meaning. Will there be titty? Sure. Boom, I'm out. I'm a producer now. Where have you been all our life, boy? We've been looking for you in Hollywood. What are these titties gonna do? Jiggle? You're a fucking genius. Give me another check. I can't write enough checks for you. You've answered our prayers in Hollywood. The 1970s were a magical time in America. I mean, yeah, we had runaway inflation, political corruption, a vicious backlash against the civil rights movement, and there were serial killers in every van on every street, but beyond that, magical. Was that like a drug thing? No. I mean, yeah, there were were a lot of drugs, but you know, the weed was actually terrible. We were decades away from the primo shit you can get today, and most folks were just smoking ditch weed that was grown behind a trailer home. And the good shit from South America was expensive and really hard to get, so everybody was stuck smoking... (sighs) Skunk weed. (laughs) No, what I'm talking about is sex. But you have my 1,000% attention. People like to think it was the 1960s that was the horny decade, but what they don't know is the boomers were just learning about sex in the 60s, and it was during the 70s that they fucked and fucked well. I, of course, was too young for all this. My parents were trapped in the 1950s, so it wasn't like they were going to key parties at the Joneses down the block. To have what they called key parties. Key parties, huh? Yeah, for those of you who don't know uh, or don't want to know if your parents were much hipper than mine, key parties were these parties where everybody put their house keys in a bowl and at the climax of the party, they'd reach into the bowl and draw out a set of keys and then two couples would swap keys for the night. 
And it also meant that they would uh, swap. Uh, it would be like wife swap. Except, yeah, these, this time they fucked. This probably never happened. It was more or less a media invention. At least that's that's what my dad told me. What, what was I talking? Oh, 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 right. Yeah, I was really too young to appreciate all the fucking that was going on. What I wasn't too young was to experience that how this loosening of societal mores was portrayed in popular culture. And in the 1970s, popular culture was television. And TV took one look around at all the fucking going on and asked itself, how can we make this pay for us? It was a tough line to walk because they couldn't just start airing hardcore porn right after All in the Family. There were still a lot of really uptight people out there and they would complain loudly. What they had to do was find a way to titillate without actually showing titties. Well, that can't be good. Well, I mean, it wasn't highbrow entertainment, but it was definitely attention getting. And uh, that is where our trip through time takes us this week, back to the mid-1970s and the era of jiggle television. His jiggling is almost hypnotic. Now, to get to the good bits, we're going to have to go back a little ways and talk about why boobs on television were such a big deal in the first place. I mean, they're just boobs. Everyone has them to one degree or another. Big boobs, small boobs, medium boobs. I'm going to skip past all the representations in art and how early photography gave us the first dirty pictures. Just know that they played a role in what came to be. But moving pictures opened up whole new dimensions in seeing naked people. One of the earliest known dirty movies is called Les Couchers de la Marie in 1896 a French film in which a newlywed couple prepares for their wedding nights. The uh, horny husband is waiting for his bride to disrobe as she removes her endless layers of clothing. We do not actually see any nudity, but that doesn't matter because just the inference of nudity was enough for the inevitable backlash. Think of the children. Won't somebody please think of the children? As the industry became bigger, racier films swung with actual nudity were made and released for mass audiences, and this made people upset. So upset that laws were being drawn up and Hollywood decided that it would censor itself. And so it was around 1930 that the Hayes Code was adopted by the studios. The exact wording of the code was broad enough to allow some wiggle room. Quote, no picture shall be produced which, shall, which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Correct standards of life subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented. Law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violations, unquote. That clear enough for you? It really isn't. But there was a last formal code of do's and don'ts that included, quote, pointed profanity by either lit, title, or lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus Christ, unless they be used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies, hell, the initials S-O-B, damn, God, spelled G-A-W-D, and every other profane or vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. Any licentious or suggestive nudity, or in, fa in fact, or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. The illegal traffic in drugs, the inference of sex perversion, white slavery, miscegenation, sex hygiene and venereal diseases, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or in silhouette, children's sex organs, ridicule of the clergy, willful offense to any nation, race, or creed, 
unquote, and a whole litany of other things that you should probably be careful while portraying, including, quote, the use of the flag, international relations, arson, the use of firearms, theft, robbery, safe crafting, and the dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Have it in mind the effect which a too detailed description of any of these may have upon the moron. Brutality and possible gruesomeness, techniques of committing murder by whatever method, methods of smuggling, third degree methods, actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime, sympathy for criminals, attitude towards public characters and institutions, sedition, apparent cruelty to children and animals, the branding of people or animals, the sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue, rape, attempted rape, first night scenes, men and women in bed together, deliberate seduction of girls, the institution of marriage, surgical operations, the use of drugs, titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcement officers, excessful or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is the heavy, unquote. Well, that clears things up. When television came along a few years later, the code was applied only more stringently because television, unlike the movies, was just out there for everyone to see. Movies were opt-ins. Everyone could just turn on the shows and there it would be. So clearly, it needed to be more closely controlled than the movies. Enter standards and practices. The network clean police, who review every piece of content put out over a network airways to ensure that it isn't. This is pure filth. Pornographic filth. And in those early days of television, standards and practice additionally ensured that the conflict shown that the content shown on television ref reflected society as America saw itself. Which was very white. The Television Academy puts it thusly, quote, During the 1950s and 60s, the networks and advertisers measured the viewing audience as an undifferentiated mass. Despite the lumping together of viewers, broadcasters structured programming content around the normal, dominant values of white middle-class Americans. Therefore, content centered around the concerns of the nuclear family. Topics such as racism or sexuality, which had little direct impact on the domestic settings, were excluded from the content. Indeed, ethnic minorities were excluded for the most part from television screens because they did not fit into the network's assumptions about the viewing audience. Sexuality was a topic allocated to the private personal sphere rather than the public arena of network broadcasting. For example, the sexual relationship of Rob and Laura Petrie and the Dick Van Dyke show in the mid-1960s could only be implied. When the couple's bedroom was shown, Twin beds diffused any explicit connotation that they had a physical relationship. Direct references to non-normative heterosexuality were excluded from programming altogether. In addition, coarse language which described bodily functions and sexual activity or profane sacred words were excluded from broadcast discourse, unquote. Because I guess white people did not fuck back in the 50s. By the 1970s, however, television was changing and was gradually becoming open to actually showing skin tones somewhat darker than Edgar Winter. Who the hell is that? He was, a, he was a singer. It would just take too long. Just Google the name Edgar Winter. It'll explain everything. Instead of hiding the fact that not every American was an upper middle class white person in a sexless marriage, TV began to show real diversity for the first time. And if you'd like a detailed explanation of what and why this happened, well... Here's this, uh... Big, big fat plug for the show. Yeah, yeah. 
See episode number 291, The Rurer More from the Television Academy, quote, However, conceptions about the viewing audience and the limits of censorship changed drastically in the early 1970s. Subjects previously excluded from television began to appear with regularity. All in the Family was the predominant battering ram that broke down the restrictions placed on television content during the preceding 20 years. Frank discussions of sexuality, even outside the traditional heterosexual monogamy, became the focal point of many of the comedy's narratives. The series also introduced issues of ethnicity and bigotry as staples of its content. Constraints on the use of profanity began to crumble as well. Scriptwriters began to pepper dialogue with dams and hells, language not permitted during the more conservative 1950s and 1960s, unquote. And once you've let the genie out of the bottle with that kind of vile, disgusting language, it's only a matter of time before the devil would send the sin of sex to tempt and torment the good people of America with deviance and vice. And his chosen demon had a name. His name was Aaron Spelling. Get thee behind me, Satan! Aaron Spelling, born in Dallas, Texas, 1923, grew up, served in World War II as a pilot, attended Southern Methodist University, and then moved to Hollywood to become an actor. He appeared in films and television and shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I Love Lucy, Gunsmoke, and Dragnet. It was his writing, however, that really began to make him a name in Hollywood, and pretty soon he had formed a production company with Danny Thomas, which produced his biggest success of his early days, The Mod Squad. Premiering in 1968, the show's primary premise centered on three cops using, the, using their youthful, hippie personas as a guise to get close to the criminals they investigated, and its promotional tagline was, quote, one white, one black, and one blonde. Very progressive. If you're alive today, you've seen an Aaron Spelling production, but there was one particular show that started a trend in television that was derided almost as much as it was copied, and they called it Jiggle Television. I like the sound of that. It was a cop show, sort of. But instead of grizzled detectives smoking cigars and chugging coffee, it featured three hot women who fought crime for a mysterious benefactor slash employer. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the police academy. assigned very hazardous duties but I took them away from all that and now they work for me my name is Charlie Charlie's Angels starring Kate Jackson as Sabrina Jacqueline Smith as Kelly and Farrah Fawcett as Jill oh Farrah the masturbatory fodder for every straight American male thanks to one particular poster for five to seven years. Hell, maybe longer. You've all seen the poster. You all know what you did to that poster. Did you ever? To the fair poster? Please. Of course I did. At least the memory of it. It was too risque for me to ever hang in my bedroom as a child. My mom would never allow something like that. Now, the show's premise was simple. The Angels were former cops, now private eyes, working for the mysterious Charlie Townsend, who only appeared on screen as a shadow concealed and as a voice from a phone speaker, and it was aided by the unsung hero of the show, the hapless 
Bosley. Oh, God, Bosley, you poor bastard. You were just so wronged in every way. Let me quote from Wikipedia here, summing up his role on the show. Quote, seemingly asexual and thus unthreatening, Bosley has been described as an indulgent eunuch. Several times he played either a pratfall type character, the buffoon, or a sugar daddy as part of one of the Angels covers. He also acts as a bumbling father figure or big brother figure to the ladies. Described as a narrative pimp with the sole male character Bosley, an asexual eunuch, the male is free to desire the Angels without feeling threatened. Writing for the New York Times in 2000, Molly Haskell noted that critics more so than the fans saw Bosley and Charlie as more procurers than protectors, and that the two male characters and the angels fell into a pimp-prostitute role along traditional gender lines, unquote. Oh, that's a bit harsh, don't you think? Yeah, it was. Because Charlie's Angels was not a particularly good show, but it wasn't a particularly bad one either. The writing and acting was about what one could expect for a network TV show of the time, yet it was groundbreaking in two ways. The first was it featured female characters as strong, empowered, intelligent, and tough. Unfortunately, the trade-off for all of that power was the second way that it broke new ground. Those same strong female characters were almost always dressed as, in a way to, uh, how can I describe it? Maybe something like, uh, T titillate the senses. There were, strictly speaking, rather more bikini scenes than necessary for a show ostensibly about fighting crime. I mean, where do you hide your gun when you're wearing that small of a bikini? Let's just keep moving. And bras were at best optional. Mini skirts and short shorts seemed to be the uniform of the day or jeans so form-feeding they must have been sprayed on by the wardrobe department. And also, one could safely expect at least one fancy dinner scene in which the angels would wear an evening gown so revealing that what was left of the imagination required very, very little imagining. Needless to say, the show became very, very popular very, very quickly. Premiering at ABC's Wednesday night 10 p.m. primetime slot, a nod towards keeping its racy content away from the leering eyes of prepudescent boys like myself, it quickly became a rating success and a top five show. These ratings seemed to surprise ABC as much as anyone else. According to the Sunday Post, quote, the pilot was aired in March 1976 and got enormous ratings, but the network ABC who thought this was one of the worst ideas for a TV series they'd ever heard, didn't believe the figures and showed it again a week later to check the ratings were just as high, even for a repeat. And a TV legend was born, unquote. According to Wikipedia, quote, at the time of spelling pitching the pilot to Char of Charlie's Angels to the network, ABC executive Michael Eisner told spelling that his pitch had to be one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. And ABC executive Barry Diller claimed that no one would ever watch it, unquote. But the show was a hit. It would move to the 9 p.m. slot and on the, in the second season and maintain a stronghold on its ratings even after Farrah left the show at the end of the first season. It stayed in the top 20 all through its run and then ended in 1981 after multiple cast changes and a long actor strike in 1980 put a nail in the coffin for the show. So, what was the secret sauce that made this such a rating shock? Well, if I had to guess, I would probably say it was the, uh... Boobs! Boobs, boobs, boobs! 
I mean, that was the universal opinion of all the critics who saw it. I'm quoting again from Wikipedia, quote, Charlie's Angels became known as Jiggle TV. Jiggle TV, also called Tit and Ass Television, or TNA for short, and in the 1970s, the amount of sex on television increased, as did its ratings. This created social controversies and consequences by critics who believed that the TV series had no intelligence or substance. These characterizations stem from the fact that the lead actresses frequently dress scantily or provocatively as part of their undercover characters. Some of those included roller derby girl, beauty pageant contestant, maid, female prisoner, or just bikini clad, and the belief that their clothing was a means of attracting viewers. Jiggle TV is seen as trashy and escapist entertainment. Farrah Fawcett once attributed the TV show's success to this fact, saying, when the show was number three, I figured it was her acting. When it got to number one, I decided it could only be because none of us wears a bra, unquote. Well, that in itself is probably the reason. I mean, there had been racy content on TV before Charlie's Angels. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In raised some eyebrows for showing bikini-clad dancers in their interstitial scenes during the late 1960s. And various variety shows had pop stars of the day dressed revealingly as they performed, but never before had The Jiggle been so prominent on a television show. NBC executive Paul Klein derisively dubbed ABC's marketing strategy as Jiggle TV. But you know what? It didn't take long for the other networks to create their own spin on the jiggle. CBS picked up an ABC pilot for DC Comics Wonder Woman, featuring a statuesque Linda Carter as Deanna Price, the alter ego of an Amazonian princess whose superpowers were strength, the lasso of truth, an invisible jet, and an outfit that prominently displayed Carter's prodigious uh, acting talents. I just want to say that again. Boobs. If you know the history of Wonder Woman, then you know the history of Wonder Woman. So let's just say that the Lasso of Truth was stand in for some pretty racy stuff in his day and for today as well. Her uh, creator led a very interesting life. Wonder Woman was objectively a better acted or better written show than Charlie's Angels and featured things like a plot and continuity. And that Linda Carter was just smoking hot and looked amazing in her super costume was more a bonus than a feature. But that doesn't change the fact that a fight scene in Wonder Woman <laughs> could be a... Uh, Quite, uh... Oh, jiggly, right? And a t-shirt at night. The comic book may have been from DC, but it was a marvel to behold. ABC just went on a tear with the Jiggle shows. Three's company. <laughs> oh. Come and knock on our door. An Americanized version of a British sitcom called Man About the House had a very simple premise. Jack Tripper needs a place to live. And he rents a room with Janet and Chrissy. But to keep the nosy landlords from thinking anything funny is going on with this arrangement, Jack has to pretend to be gay. I mean, they never come right out and say that. He just inferred through some pretty awful stereotyping. To make up for that awful stereotyping through it all, Chrissy, played by Suzanne Summer, jiggles her way through the show with as little as possible for no apparent reason, other than, you know, Suzanne Summer's had, uh, She's got big boobs. Well, so does she. Because Janet also did have big boobs, played by Joyce DeWitt, and Joyce DeWitt, way, way hotter than Suzanne Summers, and they forced her to play the plain Jane next to Summers' prodigious assets. 
You need to look no further than, than Joyce DeWitt in a battle of network stars to verify her and all of her glory. But if you want the big kahuna of Jiggle TV, you need to look at the greatest jiggler of them all. Love. Exciting and new. Come aboard. We're expecting you. perfected the art and craft of gratuitous TNA. Set on the cruise ship Pacific Princess, the show ran from 1977 to 1986 and featured a mix of Hollywood has-beens to attract the olds and a myriad of up-and-coming new talent so long as that talent looked fucking phenomenal in a bikini. The Love Boat, another Aaron Spelling creation, was a festival of cheesecake cameos and cheesy acting. It had nothing at all to recommend itself other than nostalgia and tits. Two things that ensured it would be a hit. The website flashback.com said of the show, quote, Yes, the show was famous for featuring past their prime actors and actresses, but they weren't all Maury Amsterdam. Nearly every show had one to two smoking hot actresses, which they'd inevitably parade in a bikini, lingerie, or revealing dress, or often all of the above. It was like Benny Hill with but with a flimsy story to hold it together. In other words, the content was pretty light and family-friendly, but the audience's eyeballs were constantly blinded by boobs, unquote. The official jiggle era ended in the early 1980s, and America looked around and noticed that TV had just become rubbish, filth, slime, muck, and promptly turned back the clock 30 years by electing a paragon of 50 goodness and decency whose wife had gone down on every producer in Hollywood and bless her heart for doing so in the form of, oh, you know who I'm going to say. Reagan. Reagan. I'm not obsessed with him. Yeah, you are. And the era of overt TNA and Jiggle TV began to subside. I mean, it's never gone away. Jiggle TV is with us today. All it did was shift a little bit, like a carefully adjusted cleavage shot. The Dukes of Hazard was terrible, but Daisy Duke was amazing. And her jiggle was all about that back end and those tight, tight, short, short, shorts. Or how about Baywatch? Baywatch, pure Jiggle TV. And that was in the 1990s. Hey, hey, they're running. See, this is the brilliance of the show. I say always keep them running. All the time running. Run. Run. Run, Yasmin, run like the wind. But for me, I prefer the purity of the 1970s Jiggle TV. There was an honesty in it. No one was pretending Suzanne Summers was a brilliant actress, but she looked fucking great in a low-cut top. No one was trying to convince us that the love boat was elevating the social discourse in America. It was washed-up actors and hot chicks barely wearing any clothes. And we all knew that Charlie's Angels was about seeing flaming hot women without their bras, and we embraced it. 
Today, we need to hide our carnal desires behind a veneer of plausible deniability. I mean, y'all weren't watching Game of Thrones because of its commentary on the social politics of the early 21st century. Y'all were watching it for blood, tits, and dragons, and that is exactly what the show delivered. And for me, I say we should all just be honest about it and go back to the days when Jiggle TV was open about what it was, using sex to sell advertisements for products and services that keep the 1% in power and the rest of us distracted about how badly we've been fucked over by them. Jiggle TV might not have been highbrow, and yes, it definitely demeaned women, but you know, at least we got that Farrah Fawcett poster out of it. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Is this a filler show as we work up towards the Spooktacular for 2022? You bet your sweet ass it is. You got one more coming before we take a week off to get ahead of the research and then the writing demands of a five-show Spooktacular this year. Plus, I still need to figure out bonus materials on the Patreon, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. You should go there if you're interested in supporting a product that panders to the lowest common denominator in society. Speaking of which, rate and review this show wherever you can get your pods so people can find us and, re and revel in our baseless pandering. Do all the things that Jeremy tells you to do in the closing of the show, otherwise he will be forced to have me appear in a live show without the benefit of a bra. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? And so for me, Dave... Jugs and orbs and darts and gores, Jugs Elmer Fudds and, and bouncing Buddha's Bledsoe, producer. <sighs> Sweater stretches, long protectors, beach umbrellas, frost detectors, Scooby snacks and steak eyes dice, jello molds and high beam lights. Can I please stop now? Gavin and all the fictional love boat extras on the show, we want to say Bobsy Twins and Ball Commuters, WMDs and MREs, PFDs and Snow White Dwarfs, Picasso Cubes, there must be 99 words for boobs. And we'll see you all next week. Humpty Dumplings, Hardy Boys, Double Lattes, Ode to Joys, Hooters, Shooters, Physics, Tutors, Bobsy Twins, and Bald Commuters, Double, Double UMDs, MREs, and PFDs, Snow White Dwarfs, Picasso's Cubes, 99 Words for Boobs. Gerbers, servers, holy grails, whoopee cushions, humpback whales, flying saucers, traffic stoppers, super big gulps, double whoppers, pillows, billows, gondolillos, soft serve cones and armadillos, pimped out hubcaps, inner tubes, 99 words for boobs. Earmuffs, warming globes, strobes and probes and frontal What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Now I know what to get you for Christmas. Why don't you make it a thigh master? I've broken my last three. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.